0: Thanks for having me. I'm um, going to get right down to it because it's a huge topic and we don't have very much uh, time. As you can hear from my accent, I am from High Wycombe. Um, I really am. I live on Cock Lane, <laughs> if you've been here for a while. I moved to the UK 13 years ago to study at Oxford, never left, basically. Um, and now, uh, my husband and Sophia and I, my little daughter, live really nearby. So it was very easy to get here this morning. Um, I want to set out right from the beginning what I'm here to do and what I'm not here to do. Um, you heard the word apologetics, maybe, or apologist. if you've not heard of that before. Whatever that means, it doesn't mean I walk around the world um, or Oxford and tell people about Jesus and then apologizing for doing so. I basically get the privilege, I would say, an opportunity to engage um, on some of the biggest objections that people have to God. And to faith into life. And I do that mostly with people that would describe themselves as from outside the Christian faith. So if um, you have come along, invited this morning, I want to say thank you. Thank you for your time. Uh, thank you for being here. And if you do have questions at the end, please come and find me. And I would love to engage with you further. Why would a good God allow suffering? This is a question that I would say arguably is the hardest question um, of the human heart. And so... I do not take it lightly, and uh, I'd like to say today that what I'm here to give you is not, and I hope you're not upset, the perfect answer to the problem of pain and suffering. And I want to make the case that I don't think that there ever will be a perfect answer for the problem of pain and suffering, And, and here's why. I would like you to take a moment to think about the worst suffering that you have ever been through in life or a loved one. Just for a moment, if you don't feel uncomfortable doing that, if you had, from me today, or, or if you believed that there could be or is a God, a God himself were to appear for, to you, or whoever you take as an authority, a perfect explanation for that pain or suffering that you or a loved one has passed through, for why, why you went through it. Would it have made any difference to the pain and the suffering you felt as you went through it? It may give you reasons. It may give you a lens through which to look backwards and go, okay, maybe, or oh, that makes a lot of difference. Oh, at least there's a reason for that. It can't undo or take away the pain that you have already felt. And that's why I would make the claims that there is no perfect answer, but I would like to begin maybe to engage with you on this subject. And what do I mean by engage with you, to dialogue with you, to open up maybe some questions to you before you do away with the Christian faith or with the God um, that we have come to know through the Bible and through Jesus. If you do away with this God as Stephen Fry recently claimed, you do not do away with the problem of pain and suffering. You still must grapple with it. And that's the other main claim I want to make today, that doing away with God will not get rid of pain and suffering in this world. And if you do away with God, Stephen Fry said, the moment you banish him, your life becomes simpler, purer, cleaner, and more worth living recently. Look him up on YouTube if you haven't watched that. I would say... I beg to differ. Gently, I would say that. Because I would say if you do away with God, you still are left with the question of how you answer the problem of pain and suffering. And that's where I want to pick up this morning. Suffering will not and does not go away if you reject God and very quickly, because we are in a church this morning, often I'm not speaking in a church. I was speaking on this very same subject in Canary Wharf at KPMG on Thursday for lunchtime. So I didn't open up with a Bible passage, but because we're here, I'm going to. I'm going to pick up with the story in John chapter six where Jesus is talking to his disciples. He had just fed 5,000 people. And they were really, really happy. They had a full belly. And you better believe, if you're familiar with the story of the Bible, if Jesus could make water turn into the best wine the people had ever talked, then imagine how that bread and those fish tasted for 5,000 people. It was probably the best food they'd ever eaten. So suddenly the crowds are swelling, and they're following Jesus everywhere he goes. And at this point in John chapter 6, he turns to these massive crowds, and he says, Hey, you know what? You don't want me. You don't want what I have to say. You don't really even probably going to like what I'm going to say next. But guess what? You're just looking for another handout. You just want another free lunch. And sorry, that happened once, but it's not going to happen again. So you sure you still want to stick around? Michelle paraphrased. Okay? What happens? No shock here. Loads of people are like, Ugh, that was rude. And they left. They walked away. Jesus' disciples came to him. And this is where this passage picks up. And they're like, Jesus, PR, please. Uh, People got a little bit hurt at what you said. That wasn't very nice. You didn't have to advertise. We weren't going to give out a free lunch anymore. And here's where I pick up from the Bible. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom else should we go? Only you have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and you have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. What I want to say to you today is that the answer that Jesus and the Bible gives us does not mean that we won't hurt ever again. And I say that, I say that not lightly lightly. I say that giving you some scope, knowing not to pull in your heartstrings either, but you can respond completely philosophically to this, and maybe that's where you're at and that's where your head is, and that's fine. I want to go there a little bit with you. But there might be some people here that if I respond only philosophically today, you're going to walk out of here angry and crying because the pain that you are going through or have wrestled through or might wrestle through in the future, a good philosophical argument will never touch it. So I'm speaking to you today, yes, going to look on the philosophic side a little bit, but also letting you know that I have had to, for the first time in my life in the last year, not only speak at my first funeral, but at the funeral of a five-month-old baby. My other friend lost her child, and I've just come up on the two-year anniversary of it, in the 21st of this month. There has been cancer in my own family within the last year. There has been suicide within my own family in the last three years. Once again, not to evoke an emotional response to you, but to let you know that whatever I say today has to stand up to my own heart when I've been going through it. And I stand with the disciples this morning and this is where I'm gonna start and end today. You know what? Every worldview and every religion, even if you do not believe in religion and you say, I'm an atheist, must answer three questions of human history. And if you do away with God, you still have to answer it. Why is there suffering? What solution is there? And then, is that livable? Okay, so that's where we're going really quickly. I'm going to pick up the pace a little bit more. I believe that contrast creates clarity. So we're going to quickly contrast some different religions and different worldviews' responses to the problem of pain and suffering. And then pick back up saying, only Jesus and only the response in the gospel, I believe, gives a compelling and livable engagement to this problem that every human will have to deal with at one point or another. So what is The secularist, the new atheist, the thinking person, you put it out there. I don't want to put over too many categories on there. What is the position that says, you know what? I believe with Stephen Fry that life would be simpler. It would just be easier. I'm not making the argument that suffering will go away, Michelle, but take God out and it's a lot easier to handle. Well, is that really true? The secularist or the atheist or the naturalist, says why if you say why suffering well first off suffering should be expected i think richard dawkins put it this way that the universe is exactly how we should expect but blind pitiless and indifferent because it's a, a universe that you can't attach meaning to the suffering that we get you shouldn't be asking why you shouldn't be surprised. You can't really even attach the word good or bad to it because it comes from a meaningless, random, indifferent universe. There isn't a great design. There isn't a great designer outside of it. So to say why did this happen is to ask for reason and design from nothing. That's illogical. So, starting at the secularist position, you can't even ask why. Or to ask why is meaningless. So then what is the solution? Well, go back to your biology books. Now, with all of these, with all of these worldviews, please, I'm not trying to be rash. I'm trying to fit to time. I'm pushing them to their extremes on purpose, okay? So we can contrast and compare them. What is the solution? Well, it's survival of the fittest. It's always been survival of the fittest. Suffering is going to come. Don't ask why. Learn to adapt and you will survive or you will be extinct. Bottom line. Okay, you might be saying, okay, you might not like it. It's not poetic, Michelle, but it's a lot more livable. Well, is it? Is it actually livable when you're in the midst of the worst suffering that you have been going for outside of the biology textbook? Two quick examples. A couple years ago or a year ago, Richard Dawkins was giving an interview. I'm so not picking on him. He just gives me the best illustrations, okay? He was making a very good point which shows you I'm not picking on him, that lots of Christians talk about the Bible and say, because the Bible tells me so, and they have no idea what's in their Bible. And the interviewer said to him, well, Mr. Dawkins, could you give me the title of uh, Darwin's seminal work? And he goes, well, yes, The Origin of Species. And he said, no, no, no. Could you give me the full title of Darwin's most famous work? And he started it in a couple of words. It's a very long title. And he went, oh, no, no, no. And he started it again. And by the third time, he went, oh, God right? Sorry if that offends you this morning. But just at the the fact that he could have been embarrassed on radio, suffering a little bit of embarrassment. And what did he do? Call out to something bigger. Now, I might be pressing that too hard, but I thought it was funny, and he actually laughed about it in the second that he did it bringing it a little bit closer to home. I was a chaplain for Oxford University students for seven years before I started doing this. And one of our students who was an atheist and continued to be an atheist after we moved on, came very shaken to me one day and said, I just ran across the road late to a tutorial. And I looked up and there was a bus right there. And I have no idea why I'm still standing here today. And in that moment, I bottomed out and I begged God to save me. I don't like it. I don't like that I don't believe in God. That doesn't make sense, but I needed help. Is it livable? There's nothing. Just adapt and survive. Don't call out to anyone because there's no one there. Is that livable when you're going through suffering? Moving quickly on. What about Eastern religions? Once again, I'm not putting them all into one box, but the general gist that you see. Why is there suffering? Well, there is suffering out there, but it's an illusion. Okay? It is an illusion. Suffering is at the heart of every individual human's life, but it's brought on by our own selfish desires and actions of this illusion of individuality. So what is the solution then? Well, as the great philosopher Bono put it, all religions are either grace or karma. The solution in much of Eastern thought is not death, because death, if you haven't learned that your suffering is just brought on by your own desires, we'll just, you'll be reborn and attached to that wheel of suffering in another form until you learn to renounce all your desires and all your illusions of individuality. And the cycle will go on and on and on until you realize everything is just an illusion and you make yourself one with the universe and forget your desires. That's what nirvana is. I don't know if you knew that. Nirvana is the complete detachment for life. It is reaching a great deathless lake of extinction. Make yourself extinct, and you will become one with the will of the universe, and you won't go around the karmic wheel anymore, and you won't suffer anymore. Now you might be saying today, that sounds actually pretty good. No wonder Katy Perry and lots of other people do their chanting on a regular basis. If I just renounce desires, it's all those desires I have. But just in desire wasn't so selfish, I wouldn't suffer. Is it livable? is it livable? I think the best illustration of this is from an 18th century Japanese haiku poet called Isa. Haiku, it boggles my mind. I can never get 15, whatever it is, right? He wrote one of the most famous haiku poems, but he wrote it after his wife and five children died in quick succession because of a plague. And after they died, one after another, he would go to his religious leader, and he would ask, and he would cry, and that religious leader would give the answer according to his religious worldview. The world is due, due, D E W. I've been told my accent makes that hard to understand. The world is due, and probably one of the most famous haiku poems was written: "The world is due, the world is due, and yet, and yet, is it livable to say it's all just an illusion? If you just get over your illusion." Of your individual life and your individual family and that individual suffering of your child, then it won't hurt anymore? Is that livable? What about new spirituality? Maybe you're uncomfortable with all of the boxing that I'm doing this morning. You think, well, I, I, I'm, I'm not quite an atheist. I just don't want to put a, a name on that God. And I wouldn't say that I'm a Hindu or a Buddhist, but I like some of the stuff in it. Well, a lot of new spirituality just blends, a little bit of a pick and mix. Right, And it blends kind of the hope for evolutionary or technological advancement of humanity that one day we'll be able to get more power or sur- surmount all of the obstacles of suffering that human history gives us and blend that with a little bit of mysticism and meditation and yoga or you fill in the thing, put it all together, and we are the answer. We're the most powerful force. Humanity will climb the challenge we'll get past the suffering one day. Well, you still have to ask the question, why am I suffering? when suffering reaches your life. But if you truly believe that you are the most powerful force in your own universe, then when you ask the question, why am I suffering, nothing can actually happen unless you have willed it to happen, consciously or unconsciously. So what's the solution for new spirituality gurus and positive thinking talk show hosts? Well, the solution is learn to control your situations and your surroundings and your powers a little bit better. If you learn to control your own power better then you'll stop suffering. You'll will that positivity to yourself. Do not laugh, this isn't just me talking. Rhonda Byrne, anyone heard of The Secret? This book, lots of popularity. It's based on this law of attraction. It's sold more than 19 million copies worldwide and been translated into 46 languages. Is this livable? You just need to learn to think more positive and will the right things to you. You have the power. Well, here's her explanation for when suffering happens and things don't quite go right. If you are poor, it is your fault because you are blocking money from coming to you with your thoughts. That's page 99. If you are in a car accident, you have no one to blame but yourself. Is that livable? Would you like to go on the next plane to Africa and tell the child living in poverty that the reason why they're poor and they have malaria and they're dying is because they haven't learned positive thinking enough? Is it livable? I don't think so. So what about religions that have God then? Because really that's what the heart of this question is, isn't it? So it lets you in a little secret. To even ask the question, how could I believe in a God when there's so much pain and suffering, is actually showing that you have a presupposition that you actually believe there's a God out there that needs to be caused to think. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it is. Ask my questions up. But to even ask that of God can mean there's part of you that says, if there is a God out there, I'm asking you why if. Okay? So let's look at Islam, Judaism, and Christianity. We'll dig into them and then they'll start to pathways, part ways. Why am I suffering? Why am I suffering? Well, first in Islam, to answer the question, why am I suffering? Bottom line up front is because Allah has willed it. Nothing can happen outside of the will of Allah. All good and bad comes directly from him. That is the doctrine of islam so what is the solution then did you know that islam means submission that's what the word islam means submission well that is the solution if you are a follower of this faith if allah has willed your suffering the only choice that you have is to submit to even question why would be and is considered blasphemy Is that livable? Is that livable? That's hard when you're in the midst of the pain and suffering of life. Once again, I say this with all respect in my heart, and I am here for questions afterwards. I'm having to move swiftly. What about Judaism and Christianity? Well, Judaism and Christianity start at the same point, and then they begin to part ways. Asking the question first, why am I suffering? The beginning of a response is that suffering is very real. It's very real, but it is very, very wrong. It is not life as God, the God of the Bible, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God that Christians believe was made known and authenticated through Jesus. It is not the way life as God intended it to be. Because the Bible presents from cover to cover, I would argue, and you can ask me later, that God is altogether good, altogether loving, altogether light, altogether just, and no evil can come from him. That is the difference between a Judeo-Christian worldview and an Islamic worldview, because God is not the source of both good and evil, like Allah. He is not yin and yang. He has always been good and always will be good. I, the Lord, change not, it says in the Old Testament. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. So the astute among us today might go, which just brings us back to the original question, what the heck happens then? If God is altogether good, then look around us. A lot of things aren't altogether good. Good. Will the Bible and the Judeo-Christian faith go on to make the case that the reason why we believe that God is altogether good is because this altogether good God is a God of love? What does it mean to be a God of love? Well, if you dig into that claim, it means... That he wants to be in personal relationship with the beings that he has made. And in order to be truly a God of love, you must give someone the opportunity to say, yes, I want to be in relationship with you, or no, thank you, I don't want to be in relationship with you. Because if you do not give someone that opportunity, that choice, even if you think you're wonderful, even if you are all loving and all good, if you force yourself on someone else, we have quite strong words for that in our culture, don't we? It's not loving. It's not free. It's abuse. So, this altogether good God is a God of love. And He says, This is how I created life to be. I want you to be close to me. And as long as you stay close to me and stay in relationship with me, you will be one with goodness and love and truth. But what happened? Well, uh, C.S. Lewis, you might be familiar with him through Narnia. He puts it this way. Free will, though it makes evil possible, is also the only thing that makes possible any love or goodness or joy worth happening. Now, that is how the Judeo-Christian faith begins. I'm not stopping there, okay? Give me a second. Begins to engage with the why of suffering, okay? That God that is altogether good and loving stands here and says, do you want me? Do you want to be in life with me? And do you want to follow the way that I say, because I am love and I am life, the way life should be? Yes or no? And that when we go, well, yeah, on most points, but actually, I just think that if I just do this here and step one step away, the Christian faith does not say, neither does the Jewish faith, that then God goes, ha ha, smite you because you stepped away from me. Now you get evil from me. No, no. The God of goodness and light stands right here and says, okay, you're allowed to do that. But what happens? If you take one step away from light, it gets a little bit more dark. If you take one step away from goodness, it gets a little bit more evil. If you take one step away from love, it gets a little bit more hateful. And fearful and vicious and selfish. But guess what? Don't give Adam and Eve a bad rap because all of us in all of our lifetimes, when given the choice, even Christians, let's be honest today. When given the choice to make most things in life all about us or all about someone else, even if it is God, what do we choose? We want life to be all about us. And then what happens as we make our definition of love, our definition of freedom, our definition of choice, all based on us, we create hell for the rest of the world and us around. How many people have lived in that? How many people are living in that? I don't take that lightly. So what is the solution then? What is the solution? Now, this is where the Judeo-Christian faith Ways. The solution, they both say, is we can't do anything and we need a Savior. Because actually, we're always going to be selfish. Even when we're shown a selfless way, even when we're given 613 laws, all right, with the Old Testament and the Jewish faith, or two laws that Jesus boils it down to, we still choose ourselves. So we need a Savior that's going to save us from the darkness of our own Hearts, and here's where Christianity and Judaism part ways. The Jewish faith are desperately still believing and looking for that Savior to one day come and write their hearts and make everything right. And the Christians say, "Look at Jesus; he's the fulfillment of everything you've been looking for, and he has come." The good news of the Christian faith is God of love, God of justice, God of care. Looks and goes, you can't make the right choice, and you're not making the right choice, and you're going to continue to choose wrong but guess what i'm not going to go now sit there and live with it like unfortunately i say sometimes to sophia i told you so told you you'd fall if you did that that's not the god of love he says why why do you keep hurting yourself it says in isaiah though your sins are as scarlet i'll make them white as snow come near to me come let's reason here let's talk about this i'll bring you close again And God has come down to us and brings us close through the person and son of Jesus Christ. Interesting that Nietzsche, if you're familiar with him, says, though not linking this with Jesus, but using Greek gods as his base, the gods justified the atrocities of human life by living it themselves. This is the only satisfactory response to the problem of God and suffering that could ever be given. Isn't that what Jesus did? but you might be saying well how does suffering you're saying okay the solution is a savior and jesus came and jesus died for us and yay have you ever wondered what those words mean if you're a christian today and you've ever given that answer to someone well jesus is the answer it's the cross well maybe it makes sense to you because you sing it and you talk about it a lot but how does the cross how does sacrifice how does more suffering show us love or alleviate our suffering And for the rest of my time, I'm going to quickly pick into that. Why the solution of Jesus' suffering on the cross, I would say, is the most robust and most loving and most authentic and livable answer that any worldview could ever present. First off, Jesus' suffering is personal. What does that mean? What does that mean? It means that God's suffering is not removed when we are in the midst of pain and suffering He doesn't go, oh, look at the mess that they made. Oh, they really look like they're hurting. Maybe I should send in someone and do something. No, him coming and being God among us means he came down. He suffered broken relationship. He suffered pain, suffered pain on the cross. And he understands what suffering is because he has suffered. Did you know that Christianity is the only faith and the only religion that dares to say that God not only could suffer but did suffer? That's unthinkable in other religions that believe in God. That's what makes God, God in other religions. He's so far removed. He wouldn't get down in the dirt and in the mess. John eleven thirty five, 35, the shortest verse in the Bible says, Jesus wept. Maybe you're familiar with it. If you go to the original text there, weeping does not mean shed one tear. Weeping means he snorted or raged or was sick to his very guts. Do you know why that's important? If you know where that fits in the story, his best, one of his best friends, Lazarus, just died. Do you think Jesus was sick to his guts that he died and snorting and raging and crying because he went, oh, I don't know what's going to happen a few verses next. I don't know if I can raise him from the dead or not. Maybe I'm not powerful enough. Or do you think he was putting on a show? Well, I'm going to just cry so they don't know what's coming next. And <gasps> surprise. I don't think that's the character and nature of our God at all. He was angry. He was sick to his guts. He was raging. He was crying. Why? Because of the pain of grief and loss. Because even though he was in a few verses about to set everything new, Mary and Martha thought they lost their their, their brother. They were devastated. People around thought God had failed them. They thought Jesus showed up late. And he was going, in this moment, I'm going to be upset and I'm going to rage with you and I'm going to come alongside you and go, this stinks. This stinks. This is not the way life should have been. You shouldn't have to feel this breakdown of relationship. You shouldn't have to have your heart break that way. Jesus coming among us isn't just a pithy, oh, Jesus came to save the day. It means God's suffering is personal. When you're in the midst of pain, he's right there with you. He's not getting tired going, it's been five years now, sweetheart. Move on. I make all things new. No. He's going, I know you're still hurting. I know. I know. I know it's still as hard to get out of bed every single morning. I'm right there with you. His suffering is personal. Next, his suffering is perfect. What do I mean by that? Well, I think Sigmund Freud is the one who said, when you are pushed to your visceral limit, the real you comes out. Let me tell you what happens when this Sicilian American is pushed to my visceral limit. It's not very nice. It doesn't take very much. The loft conversion in my daughter's room that I bang my head on every five seconds, it's not very nice sorry. That shocks you. Okay? Let's look at Jesus when he was pushed to his visceral limit on the cross. Arguably one of the most painful deaths anyone could ever do. What comes out of him? Just look at his responses. First, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I don't even have to be on a cross, all right? When someone hurts me, when someone's rude to me, the first response that wants to come out of me whether i let it out or not hopefully not especially if you run into me one day and i haven't recognized you right the first thing that comes out of me generally isn't i forgive you you didn't realize it that wasn't you it's not yeah that's what jesus said what about the next thing he said on the cross john please take care of my mom this is god himself God who has the power and did have the power to make sure someone was there taking care of Mary. And that the human side of him, once again, resonating with the grief of loss and the brokenness and what goes on. He's worried about relationship. He's worried about it. He turns to the thief on the cross who was just a few hours earlier jeering and making fun of him. And when the thief sees the way Jesus is reacting, he sees at Jesus' visceral limit God's coming out of him. Love's coming out. He's like, oh, my Lord, I made the worst choice of my life. Will you remember me? What does Jesus do then? Eh, yeah, of course you know at the end of the day now. No. No. So, of course. Of course. It doesn't matter if you see it at the end of your life. My answer to you is it's always yes. My answer to you is all you have to do is look me in the face and go, I dare to believe that you're for me even in the midst of suffering i dare to believe that you're good i dare to believe you are who you said you are his suffering is perfect the cross should not scare us or offend us because sacrifice is the cost of relationship you either sacrifice yourself or you sacrifice the relationship take it a step away from the cross if that's too hard to get your head on think about the most The most meaningful relationship you've ever had in your life, that has lasted the longest because they have sacrificed or you have sacrificed the most to say, regardless of what you do, regardless of how ugly, I'm still here. That's what love's made out of. So it should make sense that the greatest love in the world would have to make the greatest sacrifice. His suffering is personal. His suffering is perfect. And finally, his suffering is powerful. Let me just take a few more minutes to hover on this and then I'll be over. Why is it powerful what does it mean that the cross is powerful that a suffering is powerful well first off i believe that the suffering that we see in the story and life of jesus and in the bible and his surrounding relationships that were affected by the life of jesus that this suffering is a powerful suffering because it's powerful in giving room for powerlessness let me explain the astute and the theologians among you might go ah She missed a statement on the cross. Jesus also said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think it's important that the Bible puts that in there. Because I think, once again, the Christian engagement with the problem of pain and suffering leaves room, gives scope, invites us into that moment that even Jesus himself at one point went, where the heck are you? Why, God? Why? Why do I feel alone right now? Why? Why is this happening to me? It's okay to do that in the Christian faith. It's okay to cry out with possibly your very last breath and go, where are you? You let me down. What do you think his disciples did in the three days between Jesus' death and resurrection? I've been in Anglican tradition for a little bit since I've been here, so we make part of Lent, part of the whole thing is we're supposed to understand that there are times in life of darkness. There is times of death when we don't understand. My friend who's just come up on the two-year anniversary of losing baby Noah, she was writing a journal from when she found out that she was going to lose him. And she said that I could share it with you this morning. Two years, well, just before two years ago at the 20-week scan, they found out the baby Noah had a condition which meant that he would not be able to live very long. But they chose to bring baby Noah to full term, to name him, to dignify him with a name, and to show him as much love as they possibly could for the 21 days that he lived. And she writes from the day of finding out about the scan all the way through to a few weeks after Easter, because that was her full process of grieving and funeral and coming through it. And this is what she writes She says, I don't think Christians give enough time to the hiatus of suffering and grief before the victory and the resurrection. Suffering is awkward and hurried over. People who are there in the thick of grief do not need to be dragged quickly to the empty tomb to meet Jesus. I made a decision that no matter how many unanswered questions and how little I understood of God's power, his powerlessness, his plan, I would not deny Jesus or betray him or abandon him. That's a big claim for someone who had just lost their baby. I believe that the Christian message is so powerful because it gives scope for this. It doesn't say you're not allowed to cry. It doesn't say you're not allowed to rage. Jesus himself did it. So his suffering is powerful, even in its seeming powerlessness sometimes. It's also powerful for eternity. Now, this is where we usually jump to next, but let's pick into that a little bit. Yes, there is the resurrection. Yes, there is heaven. But what does that mean? Is it just the Christian, happily ever after, they all lived. It's all going to be right in the end. So dry your tears. Every tear will be wiped from your eye. It'll be okay. Let's move on. I think that's cheapening the idea of eternity. I don't think that's digging into the power of the resurrection. If the resurrection is true, And I believe there's lots of evidence for it that you can look into. I can talk to you about later. There's courses that you can go and look into the evidence for the resurrection in history. If the resurrection is true, it moves life beyond the grave. And it defines for us all that life cannot define. It shows us that death is not the end. I would make the case this morning that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so much more than a fairy tale ending to the Christian faith. It is the most crucial element of our faith and the most powerful element of of our answer to the problem of pain and suffering. And this is why author Tim Keller puts it this way in his book, walking with God through pain and suffering. The idea of heaven can be consolation for suffering, a compensation for the life that we have lost. But resurrection is not just consolation. It is restoration. We get it all back. The love, the loved ones, the goods, the beauties of this life, but to new unimaginable degrees of glory and joy and strength. It is a reverse of the seeming irreversibility of loss. Let's press into that for just a second. Have you ever thought of heaven and eternity that way? Have any of you ever come across the story of Job in the Bible? Possibly one of the best ways to grapple with intense pain and suffering in a lifetime. At the end of it, if you've read it, what happens? He gets all of his wealth double back, right? He gets all of his land and animals double the amount back. How many children does he get back? Ten. He lost ten. He gets ten back. Why is that? Well, some commentators and some theologians would say that the very reason for that is because the truth of the resurrection and the power and life and eternal relationship that is offered in the God of the Bible means that though his ten children died, they were not gone. They were alive they still had personality. They still had character. He got 10 brand new children because one day when he crossed into eternity, believing in this eternal God, he would see his other 10 children again, say so he didn't need and couldn't have replacement children because you can never replace who someone is. It's powerful in its seeming powerlessness, the suffering of Jesus. It's powerful for all eternity in a way we never quite dig into or imagine. But also just to give it a little bit more of a kicker to show you it's not just, oh, one day. The suffering of Jesus Christ, if we choose to believe he is who he says he is and choose to believe that the cross and the resurrection is all that it can be for us, it's powerful in the present. What do I mean by that? It's powerful enough to change our hearts from that darkness, from that selfishness, from that part within us all that makes us choose against God all of the time. Because so often when we point our fingers at God or when we point our fingers at Christians, we point our fingers at other suffering, you know what we're doing? Author Rice Brooks says this, we want God to stop evil consequences, but not our own evil actions. We want God to stop evil happening to us, but not the evil that happens through us. And the message of Jesus Christ not only says it's powerful because I suffer alongside of you and I won't move on and I'm right here and I've suffered. It's powerful because it creates a way back to God in relationship. It's powerful for eternity because one day he will make every sad thing become untrue as Tolkien put it. But it's really powerful because it's not just one day if you choose to say, okay, only you hold the words of life. I don't get it. It hurts. It's hard. But come up with a better answer for me. Give me a better worldview. That's going to walk me through this pain and suffering. And I don't think there is one out there. So Jesus, I want to say yes to you. I want to trust you. Because I don't have anywhere else to go. And there is nowhere else to go. And trusting you is going to change me a little at a time. He brings healing to our emotions, healing to our bodies even, healing to our relationships. He gives us the power to be forgiven and forgiving others, to love others in a way that is selfless. that begins to change our world. We can go and stop the slave trade that's happened again because we care about something greater than ourselves. We can mend other relationships. We can become foster parents. We can do things because his suffering is powerful even in the present if we step into his resurrection. As Christians, we are confident in the promise of eternal life, not because we have imagined it or visualized it or followed seven steps to reach it. We're confident because there is evidence and there is proof and we have seen Jesus in human history already cross from death into life. Have you looked into the evidence of who Jesus is, of his claims in history, of who he says he is? That's where you need to start. If you haven't done it, we haven't done it for a long time, I challenge you, look at Jesus Can you trust he is who he says he is? And if you do, you might not have all of the perfect answers to why you've been through suffering. It won't stop you hurting in the future. But I think you will have the best way to walk through pain and suffering that has ever been presented. If you would like to do that for the first time, possibly, or for the first time in a long time, just really quickly as I end. Thank you for being so patient. It's such a big subject. I'd like to give you a chance to pray. And it's really easy It's not a magic spell. It's not something weird. It's just acknowledging, God, you're more than an idea. God, you're really out there, and there's nowhere else I could go or want to go because nothing else, no other argument, no other person, no other religion provides an answer that engages my heart when I'm suffering and that gives me a way out now and forever. If you'd like to do that, I'm going to say a simple prayer that is simple words I'm trying to get Sophia to say all the time sorry please and thank you sorry for living in a way that has caused so much suffering and trying to live without you thank you that you came to make all things new thank you that you offer a way back thank you that i'm not excluded from your offer please accept me today please come into my heart today and change me i want to start trusting you all right so bow your heads i'm going to give you a chance to pray for the first time or for the first time in a long time heavenly father thank you that you're real thank you that you're good thank you that you are love and thank you that that's not just personal wishful thinking but you came and showed us that through jesus i'm so sorry we're sorry that we've tried to be god and tried to live without you please forgive us please please forgive us and thank you that you created a way where we could come back to you thank you that you made a way where we can be changed and away through our suffering. Please, by the power of your Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that raised you from the dead, come and heal my heart. Come and make all things new. Come and help me to trust you. What I don't understand to see a way out. In your precious name we pray, Jesus, amen. Thank you for listening. I just want to, as I hand it on, say that there will be a chance to um, make yourself known or to get further prayer or to ask me questions in this next um, section. Please feel free. I won't be upset. Please come. And if you did happen to pray that for the first time or the first time in a long time, let someone know then. Or why don't you fill out this form that this church gives you so that they can give you some free resources or get you on a course where you can ask more questions. It's so important. Don't do this alone. Thank you so much.